0: Well, let's turn over to Ephesians 5 as we continue our um, kind of topical series dealing with biblical masculinity, femininity, manhood, womanhood, and uh, we'll be looking at uh, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, um, portions of it, along with some other texts this morning. Again, our normal pattern is to go through books of the Bible. We're taking this uh, short excursion into this topic um, and then... Uh, Lord willing, we'll be launching into the Gospel of Luke a little bit later on, um, toward the Advent season. My cord here is twisted. Nevin said uh, we'll uh, have the opportunity to be in Denver for uh, the Rocky Mountain Regional Fire Conference, and uh, was looking for, I'm looking forward to not having to speak because I spoke at the one last year and then spoke at National, uh, the International Fellowship, and so. I don't have anything to do at this one except Mike DeVries, who uh, called me, uh, who has been enjoying the lovely weather in Disney World, and so they'll be coming back from that, having gone through, missed a couple days of their, their trip, and uh, they'll be, just be coming back from there um, uh, for the conference. I think they're probably coming back today or tomorrow, so he asked me if I would MC. so I have to MC, but that's all I have to do, so I get to tell corny jokes and introduce people, so. I apologize to Nevin in advance for any bad jokes I make at, at the conference. So, uh, yeah, so pray for those who will be speaking to us. I think there are four regionals, six, six regionals going on. There's, there's one happening. They're all happening in the next couple weeks. There's one in Ore- Oregon, Washington, Washington. There's one in California. There's one here. There's one in Minnesota, one in Ohio, and one in somewhere in the southeast. Somewhere in there, I can't remember where. But they'll all all happen in the next two to three weeks here at the beginning of October. So pray for those conferences, that pastors would be strengthened, um, encouraged. One of the neat things about the FIRE conferences, especially the regionals, is we spend uh, a good chunk of our time um, giving church reports and praying for one another. And so just know that... uh, um, Uh, Those who will be gathered there in in Denver uh, will be praying for our church, but we'll be praying for the other churches in this Rocky Mountain region, and uh, just like at the International uh, Conference, we get opportunities to pray for um, all the churches that are gathered there, and uh, we look forward to spending time praying for us. So let me read from Ephesians 5. Uh, I'm actually going to back up to verse 15 to begin the reading. Our text kind of starts in verse 21, which in the ESV is in the middle of a sentence. Uh, Some versions have that as its own sentence. Again, Paul sometimes is a little bit tricky to figure out how to uh, divide up his thoughts. But I'm going to back up and just, we'll get a running jump, a running start at uh, the text, beginning in verse 15. Let's hear God's holy word to us in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And we thank God for his word and ask him now to help us apply its truth uh, to our lives. There was a book written way back in 1991 by a woman named Judith Butler called Gender Trouble. And boy, if she thought we had gender trouble in 1991, what in the world would she be thinking about our world in 2022? Well, she would probably be happy because her book is... Uh, she felt that the gender trouble was in the traditional archaic roles that uh, she felt people were playing out in society. And she advanced the argument that, well, gender isn't something you are. It is simply something you do. And she said, essentially, there's nothing intrinsic to masculinity or femininity, but that gender is, this is a quote from her, really only to the extent that it is performed. So it's just how you perform. And you can see how that kind of way of thinking has now become, uh, for lack of a better term, engendered in the way we think about human sexuality and masculinity, femininity, men and women, where today, you know, we say, well, there isn't really anything. Male genders are social constructs and, and uh, they don't really exist and therefore it's however you behave, whatever you feel like, whatever your um, desire is to be, well, you be that if you're... Doesn't matter what your biological DNA says you are. Um, it's however you feel. And that, that can change from day to day. It's you know fluid and, and, uh, and you act in ways that correspond to society's constructed idea of particular gender identities. And this has caught fire today. Common to hear people proclaim that there's nothing inherent, natural or essential in men and women that causes them to behave differently. And yet, it's really interesting that there's a tension there because though people will say that on, one, on the one hand, on the other hand, they'll actually talk and behave as if men and women, shockingly, are different, deep down in the fabric of their natural inclinations. Um, how, how often, even in the roles of femininity in our world, do we hear still people make statements like, a mother's love, or that... You know, you look at a, a, a beautiful building or a, a beautiful decorating job in a house and you say, oh, she brought a woman's touch to this place. We still use phrases like that as if they, and everybody knows what you mean. This is what's interesting. If, if gender were really so confusing, well, then no one would know what, a woman's touch. Well, we can't define what a woman is, so what do you mean by a woman's touch? And yet no one would say that. Everyone would know exactly what you meant when you said that. You know, companies, because of the Me Too movement and and uh, allegations of sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, in management chains, and abuses of power, uh, have, have rightly taken looks. You know, organizations from, you know, religious organizations all the way up to just businesses and political organizations have rightly looked and admitted that there maybe have been... Um, in various ways and to various degrees in different companies and different organizations, abuses of women. And they've admitted that often there is too much of a um, macho competitive work culture. And and maybe maybe that's true. What's their solution, though? Have you noticed what the solution has been over the last five to ten years? It's to get more women in leadership, right? To put more women on boards, to have more women... Uh, in senior positions in companies because experts tell them that they're in need of things like emotional intelligence and more humanity-driven thinking in the company, and there is an assumption. And I'm not here to say whether that's good or bad. uh, I'm fine with it. Uh, To have more female CEOs and to more women on business boards and stuff, that's fine. That's great. But notice that there's an assumption there that these companies and that the culture at large is making... And that is that women are the ones who bring the desired qualities about, As if there's a difference between men and women. See, our culture can't have it both ways. They want to say, on one level, there's no difference between men and women. And yet, even they recognize that if we want certain qualities to be more accentuated in business culture, well, then we need to add more women to the, to the, to the whole thing. And yet, at the same time, they're saying, but we can't define what a woman is. Well, then how do you know who to appoint to the board? Right? It's just... just tip of the iceberg of how confused our culture is about this kind of thing. So that begs the question for us of what is really distinct, deep down, about women? And if there is such a thing as femininity, how should women aspire to it? Should men honor and treasure that? And we're going to keep answering those questions, not all of them, and not in detail because we don't have time, but last week we studied Uh, and talked about the first three chapters of Genesis and and we noted character qualities that were found in Proverbs 31, noting, by the way, that they aren't exclusive to women, that these are examples of what a godly woman looks like. But of course, most of those things are things that godly men should aspire to as well and that they're more character qualities than they are abilities or talents or culturally connected ideas of what women look like. And I really encourage you to look at those. There you go. Um, I, I promise I won't walk away. So, we want to uh, start with a sort of a summary statement to help us see uh, what maybe a biblical idea of femininity or womanhood looks like, and then we'll sort of unpack it at our time together, looking at several scripture passages, but zeroing in on the two that we've read already this morning. And here's our kind of summary statement. I think I have it for you there in your notes. And it is this we had kind of one for men, here's one for women. Biblical femininity is displayed in a loving disposition to cultivate life, to help others flourish, and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from godly men in particular contexts prescribed by God's Word. Okay? And I've cobbled this together from a few different sources. Um, But again, biblical femininity is displayed in a loving disposition to cultivate life, to help others flourish. And to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from godly men in in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. Now, from that first phrase, we're summarizing femininity here, trying to identify how it's displayed. What is distinct about it? And as we stressed in the past weeks, men and women are equally created in the image of God, Genesis 1 co-heirs of redemption in Christ, that in terms of our relationship with the Lord, it is not, doesn't matter whether you're male or female, just like it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek, uh, what matters if you're trusting in the Lord. Galatians 3 says this, and so neither gender is superior or more spiritually worthy, still though we are equal in terms of bearing God's image, and though we are equal in terms of salvation, we are distinct in the way that God has made us. So this definition is seeking to highlight what is distinct about women, what is unique about them. And we, of course, want to use the Bible as our, as our authoritative guide, which is why we're not talking about American femininity, modern femininity, traditional femininity, or anything else, but rather seeking what is universal in God's design for women. And that will be played out differently in various cultures, in various communities, and even in various families. But we say that femininity involves a loving disposition designed and given by God. And women should feel that this disposition or inclination, propensity, whatever you want to use, to express their femininity in these ways is actually a good thing. And we're calling it a a loving, gracious disposition because when women live within God's design, just like when men live according to God's design, they actually become fountains of grace to others and bring blessing and beautify the world that God has created in the way that God has intended. So what is this loving disposition involved? Well, we're going to look at three basic things uh, this morning. The first we already kind of covered last Sunday, and that is that women cultivate life. Women cultivate life. And, and um, it's particularly what we looked at in Genesis 3, where we're told that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And we, we mentioned that the name Eve is related to the Hebrew word for life. Adam was created from the ground, called to work and keep the garden, and when he sinned, the ground was cursed, and therefore his role of worker and keeper became frustrated, but he wasn't able to escape it because he was going to be forced to live from the ground. And when this is true today, whether you're a farmer or not, you have to work in order to eat, and so you cannot escape the curse of the ground, um, even though it might be more difficult now. Because ultimately, this is who we are called to be, to keep God's creation mandates. Eve, though, was created from the man, was called to be a helper to the man so that they could be fruitful and multiply. And when she sinned, childbearing was cursed. Childbearing became just like the man's work was cursed. So the woman's main role of bearing children was made more painful. And though she might want to escape from it, we're told that she's still going to desire a relationship with her husband, she's still going to desire children, and therefore, uh, there's no way of getting around this idea of nurturing and bringing life through childbearing. So, Adam's design, as we mentioned last week, uh, Adam's design more parallels the work of forming on the first day of creation, forming, working, keeping, organizing uh, the garden, Where Eve's design corresponds more uniquely to God's work of filling creation and bringing life and and beauty. And we can understand this even in our homes. And again, we're speaking in generalities here. Every relationship is different and there's a a balance in every family. But in general, uh, men are more adept at building a house, whereas women are more adept at filling it with the right types of things, making it beautiful. And so, while both genders are called to work and exercise dominion, both are involved with relationships, the the Bible does suggest that men tend to be more characterized by working dispositions, while women tend to be characterized more by relational dispositions. Now, this proclivity in women to cultivate life is most uniquely seen in childbearing, of course. God made only Eve able to do that, not Adam. Adam. And so, contrary to popular opinion, women are the ones who, gives birth, who give birth, uh, I think we can talk to Amanda about that, and she's probably, you haven't had any men give birth recently at, at I didn't think so. Okay, I was just checking, because I hear about birthing parents on, on, online, and last I checked, that's still something that only Eve was able to do, not Adam. But remember, Eve's name doesn't mean birth, it means life, so the impulse to cultivate life in others as a universal feminine trait, is not restricted just to that of giving birth, and therefore it's not restricted just to biological moms. Remember the woman in Proverbs 31. She gives life not only to her children, but to those around her. She feeds the poor. She speaks words of wisdom to those who will hear. She strengthens her husband. She helps her servants uh, in her wealthy household. Or Titus 2, where Paul calls older women to the life-giving work of training younger women for godly living. Or 1 Timothy 5.10, where Paul gives the qualification for widows to receive support from the church, including things like shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good works. In other words, she has given life and supported life to the saints and to her neighbors. And that holds true whether a woman is young or old, single or married, divorced, widowed, whatever the case may be. And so, first of all, we praise God for the women in our lives and i praise god for the women in our church who consistently and selflessly cultivate life in others and that can take a lot of different forms and if you're a woman how wonderful and beautiful that god has designed you to be able to be a life giver in so many ways consistent with your own personality your own gifts and talents your own spiritual gifts and your own seasons in life and so thank you for for doing that and and for the and for all of us particularly the women look for ways to cultivate life Uh, to be life-affirming, life-giving in our church and in our culture and in your homes. So we looked at that mainly last week, so we won't belabor that point. Number two, we also looked at last week, and that is that women help others flourish. Women help others flourish. They're helpers, right? And and we remember that we're told the Lord God, Genesis 2.18, said, It's not good for the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Well, what does that mean and what does it not mean again? Well, it does mean that the woman was designed to bear God's image, and God is often described as the helper and sustainer of his people, right? Psalm 70, verse 5, I am poor and needy, hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. So being a helper is not to diminish the role of women. Being a helper actually signifies that men are in need of help. Men can't do it on their own. If if Adam was by himself, he might have been able to work the garden, tend the garden, name the animals, but how would he ever be fruitful and multiply? He would not be able to do that. He needed help. There was something that was not good with him alone, and therefore he needed a helper fit for him to complement him in the ways uh, that he needed to help his needs. And this is what God does. And yet, we don't think of God being a helper or the Holy Spirit being our comforter, keeper, and helper as being a uh, uh, diminishing the Godhead. We know that we need help. Therefore, when women strengthen and comfort and minister to, uplift, encourage, renew, nurture, revive others, well, they are displaying the very character of our helping God. The greatest help that God has given us, of course, is in sending us His own Son to do for us what we could not do on our own, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross as a sacrifice and rise again to give salvation to all those who would trust Him. So actually, when women help others, they are subtly and yet beautifully pointing to the ultimate act of love that God has shown us in His Son. What a glorious privilege that is. And by the way, this doesn't mean that men shouldn't strive to be helpers as well. right? We're talking about uniquely and particularly the role of women, but of course men should strive to be uh, a helper to those around them. So the inclination to help others flourish does not mean in any way that women are inferior to men, or that what women do in the home, in the church, or in the world is of lesser value. It also doesn't mean that all women help others in the same way. And it's on this point that we make a distinction between what the Bible says in a prescriptive way as his as commands and descriptive ways in describing how that worked its way out in the lives of women in biblical times and eras. In Genesis 2, Eve was called to be Adam's helper in a prescriptive formal sense. God gave him authority in marriage, called Eve to follow his lead but to provide the help he needed in order for both of them, for, in order for the human race, to fulfill God's call and mandates to them. So we call this kind of helping... Uh, helping with a capital H, right? The command of Scripture to be a helper with a capital H. Now, in marriage, this uh, one of the ways that this works itself out is the the feminine or female disp- helping disposition becomes formalized in joyful submission to a husband's leadership, or in church, uh, having male leaders because that's what the Bible teaches. But when we speak descriptively and informally in a broad and general sense, we shouldn't be surprised to find women express this helping inclination with a lowercase h in all sorts of settings and all sorts of contexts, which may vary from woman to woman and from culture to culture, but the proclivity to provide helpful, supportive, uplifting care to others is not a switch that gets flipped only when a woman puts on a wedding ring or bears children because God has designed women to express this in various ways. So think of Rahab and the help she offers the Hebrew spies in Joshua 2. She is a helper, but by no means do we see her as some sort of weak character with weak theology and weak thinking about God. She is one who takes risks. She is one who boldly seeks to help the people of God uh, capture the city for the Lord. So she, And she stands in this line of, of the women of the Bible who do amazing things. Think of Esther. Is Esther some sort of uh, sit-back and, you know, and and just be uh, a victim of whatever happens in, in her life. No, she is someone who, again, boldly risks her life to help fulfill Mordecai's plot to undo the, uh, the genocide against her people, the Jews. Right, so she takes risks. She boldly goes to the king and makes him aware of things and so forth. Think of the women listed in Luke 8, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. By the way, the word others in Greek there in Luke 8 is feminine, uh, meaning he's, he's speaking of other women who provided for Jesus and his disciples in physical and financial ways. In other words, women in the Bible don't just cook meals or heal bruises or provide emotional care. They do all that, but they also are savvy and give money to help the advance of the gospel. Think of Phoebe in Romans 16, who Paul describes as a patron of many and of myself as well, providing support. Again, we think of Lydia, who, uh, who was apparently wealthy, a business owner, and yet submits herself to the Lord's authority uh, whenever she's baptized, becomes one of the first converts, maybe the first convert in Europe, and then works to help and support the Apostle Paul. Think of uh, the woman who breaks the alabaster box of, of oil and pours it upon Jesus, and uh, the, the upset nature that the apostles get at the idea of wasting something so precious, and yet she has a, a robust theology to know, and Jesus declares it so, that she actually understands. In, in helping Jesus, in serving Jesus, she actually shows a theological understanding uh, beyond that of which the apostles had in that moment. And we could go on and on. You could think of, of everyone from uh, Dorcas to, um, you know... Um, So many characters in the Bible who show great strength, these women, who in various ways, yet without usurping their roles, they show glorious ways of how to be helpers. So what we see there is that helping others flourish doesn't have anything to do with weakness. It's actually a way of summarizing feminine strength, that these women could be described not just as godly or beautiful in character, but also tough and persistent and wise and radically committed to God's glory and the good of others. Here's how Abigail Dodds writes about this idea of women helping others flourish. uh, She wrote this article on Desiring God. She says, it's a little bit long and a little bit poetic. I put just part of it there for you. But listen and see if she doesn't capture something distinct about femininity. She says, the unique influence of a godly woman is in transforming things. Of course, men transform things too. But I'm talking about how a woman inevitably transforms things in a feminine way. In this transformative role, whether single or married, a woman mimics her Savior. For like him, she submits to his will. And also like him, God uses her to take what was useless on its own and shape it into glory. Dirty things clean. Chaos turned to order. An empty kitchen overflowing with life and food. Children in want of knowledge and truth and a mother eager to teach. Husbands in need of help and counsel and wives fit to give it. Friends and neighbors with a thirst for truth and a woman opening her home and heart to share it with them. Through hospitality. When the Bible commands feeding, nourishing, training, and love, a godly woman sets to the task, enhancing and beautifying everything around her. So, women, uh, one of their roles is to help others flourish, to be helpers in a strong, uh, theologically robust way without stepping over uh, the, bo- the bounds of what God has decreed in His Word. And then this third thing that we're going to talk about more, we're going to begin to touch on it today, but we're going to talk about it more when we talk about how this works itself out in the home. Um, But this is where we get to Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, where we say that women also embrace godly leadership. And by the way, like all these things, again, they can apply to men. So men, you don't have to sit back and say, oh, I can check out today and... I can, uh, because this one's for the women, and uh, because men also embrace godly leadership, don't they? It's not as though women are the only ones who embrace godly leadership, men should embrace godly leadership as well. But we turn to that section of the summary that says that part of the unique uh, disposition of women is to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from godly men in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. And the contexts we're thinking of that are described in God's word, particularly are marriage and the church. Uh, those are the two specific contexts that are mentioned in the scriptures. And again, we're going to be looking at more at passages about these issues in weeks ahead, but just consider the passages that we've read this morning. Ephesians five, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse thirty three of Ephesians five Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects. Her husband. So, in these verses in Ephesians five, we see that wives are called to submit to and respect their husbands. Now, to some, and if we read this on you know CNN or heaven forbid MSNBC, uh, this is an archaic command to have military-like compliance for wives to be punching bags and and uh, listen to a man regardless of what he says. But that's not what the Bible intends by these words. That is a misunderstanding. And to be fair, there have been men who have abused this type of authority. They have abused their role as leaders. And um, we'll talk more about that. But, so that has happened, but that doesn't mean that we reject what God's word has said because people abuse it. We simply, that's the role of the church to provide discipline for that. So the word submit simply means to place oneself under authority. And in our lives, we are all under authority pretty much all the time. In fact, I would dare to say there's probably not a moment of your life goes by that you're under some authority that you submit yourself to. We're all under the authority of the, of the state in some ways. There's laws that we live by, and when we break them, well, we're, we're risking being um, fined or arrested for breaking or ticketed for breaking those rules. So we're under that authority. We're under the authority of... Have you ever gone to a you know a baseball game or a football game or to some event or a concert and there's all that fine print on your ticket and and what does it essentially say basically says "Eh, we can take a picture we can use your likeness if you get out of control we can kick you out right and you're basically signing up by going and attending an event to submit to the authority of that place right when you you go to a, a restaurant you will see signs that say no what no shirt No shoes, no service. Which means that if you want to come in here, you are voluntarily submitting yourself to the authority of that restaurant to say you can't come, you know, in you you can't go to eat at Ruth's Chris and have a steak in your uh, bathing suit and flip flops, right? They will ask you politely to leave, right? They will not serve you your filet mignon. I don't know. Maybe they will. Who knows? But some places won't. Okay. You're, you're voluntarily submitting yourself. You don't have to go in there, but you're voluntarily submitting yourself. So we're used to this idea of authority, and yet none of us think somehow that submitting to authority means uh, implies weakness or implies lesser than, right? I don't think when I go into a place and they ask me to wear shoes or they won't serve me, I don't think of that as being weak or, or being um, abused. I simply think, oh, that's, that's the way this works. That's the way it works in there. Uh, they, it's their business, they have the right to enforce the rules that they want. Well, God has created things like marriage. God has created the church, and therefore, he gets to enforce the rules the way that he wants. And yet, we trust that he doesn't do so in a capricious uh, way without reasons, that he has created men and women with certain abilities, and he is also displaying something about himself that we'll get to. So, in marriage, this means that wives recognize God has placed her husband over her as a spiritual leader. And she is called to trust her husband as the one whom God has commanded to lead, guide, protect, and provide. And in this, she actually shows a a picture to the world of the church's relationship to Christ. And and this is the real heart of of why this is important, right? It's it's not because... uh, even really about marriage, but it's because of how this relates to Christ and the church. It's how this relates and pictures the the relationship, the submissive relationship of the church to the Savior. And if marriage is a picture of that, then when we misuse our particular roles, whether it's godly, compassionate leadership of husbands or uh, willing, submissive, and helpful uh, submission as wives, we actually do damage to this picture of Christ in the church. Because in, in marriage a husband's authority is not ultimate. It's delegated. It's partial. Because that husband answers to God. So when a woman follows her husband's leadership, she is actually following Jesus. And this isn't always easy. Because, I hate to break it to you ladies, this may come as a shock to you, not all husbands are perfect like Jesus is. Is this news? Right? See, the women are... Last week, the men were nodding a lot, but the women are very much nicer this morning. Right? They're not elbowing maybe uh, as much. But this is true. Women have husbands who are not perfect, and therefore, they're going to mess up, either in over or underdoing their leadership roles, which means that if you're a wife and if your relationship to your husband In submitting and following his leadership is a picture of the church's role as the bride of Christ to the bridegroom of Jesus, then one of your regular acts of worship is actually to trust that God's plan for you to submit even to a fallen and sinful husband is ultimately for your good and for God's glory. To rebel against that is actually to to say you're not trusting God. And so while men, yes, need to step up to their leadership responsibilities, while men need to accept and embrace the responsibilities and roles that God has given to them, we looked at that several weeks ago, and and there is no excuse for lazy, apathetic, uh, or domineering, angry men in leading their families, or leading their churches, or leading their businesses, or whatever the case, whatever role of authority that they have, uh, that is an an abrogation of their duties, that is to reject their duties and not trust that God is, has given good instruction. So it is for wives and for, we'll talk about churches and their relationship to leadership, but for wives to reject the authority of their husbands to usurp it or to undermine that authority is to actually not trust God. Because again, it's not as if God said, here are the rules and then watched how husbands did that and went, didn't see that coming. It's not as though God was like, I envisioned perfect men, I don't know what happened. No, of course God knew. And this is a struggle. It's actually a test of faith to say, do I trust God enough to willingly submit to this authority? Now, we're going to continue unpacking in weeks ahead what leadership and submission look like in the home and in the church and in the world. But the summary is that it looks like two equal partners moving, as we said, I think, uh, when we talked about men male leadership, two equal partners moving in with different steps in a dance to do one thing good and bring glory to God. That when we move in a dance, somebody has to lead and somebody has to follow or the dance doesn't work, but it takes two to tango, literally. So this is not primarily about a 50s or 1850s stereotype of marriage. And there's a lot of things that we probably would say maybe our world has progressed in, but so many ways in which we've fallen away and the reason why we don't look to the 1950s or the 1850s for examples of marriage we don't even look to the puritans as examples of marriage is because paul didn't write in a context of the 1950s the 1850s the puritan era he wrote to first century asian people so he understands but notice how the commands are not culturally tied there are culturally tied things in the new testament and um We have to interpret it rightly and understand those things. But when he's writing, what what he's writing is God's vision for all marriages at all times, even if the application of it may look different in different cultures. But this is transcultural, universal teaching of the Bible. But a wife isn't just called to submit because the woman in Proverbs 31 isn't even primarily celebrated for being submissive. I think that is just being assumed in the context but rather, notice that what's noble about this woman in Proverbs 31 that we looked at last Sunday is how she compliments her husband and makes her family better. That's why we're using this phrase, affirm, receive, and nurture, strengthen leadership. Expressing femininity in marriage means leveraging whom God has made you to be as a woman and for you to step up and strengthen, encourage, and help your husband, your family grow in maturity, Again, he's likely not perfect, you're not perfect, but one of the main ways God will make your husbands grow, including in expressing their own biblical manhood, is through your feminine influence. We see this in marriages all the time. Husbands drop the ball. They forget or fail to take initiative in how to approach decision-making. And biblical godly wives won't just take over and they won't just, you know, that's kind of usurping authority. And they won't just complain and, and you know, nag and belittle. But they will find ways to firm, firmly and yet lovingly encourage their husbands to lead in those areas. And husbands need their wives' encouragement. And sometimes they need their wives' rebuke. So submission doesn't simply mean being quiet and doing whatever a husband says to do. But it's, not, it's allowing and encouraging godly leadership. And so one of the questions that comes up when talking about femininity in marriage is, well, how is a woman supposed to do this? Especially when that husband may not be respectable or isn't leading well. Do wives still have to submit to him? And we read in 1 Peter 3, Nevin read for us earlier, likewise, and he says likewise because it's coming off of this way in which different acts of submission are being seen, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure conduct. So, should a wife submit to a husband that doesn't lead well? And the answer is usually yes. Peter says, even if some do not obey the word, and so this husband is either disobedient in certain ways, or even more likely, Peter is saying that he hasn't obeyed the word of the gospel. He's not a believer. And so let's not sugarcoat this. That's a very difficult situation to endure, to have a husband who's not regenerate. And yet the wife here has the responsibility to relate to him in a submissive, trust, and loving relationship as best she can, even though his leadership will be imperfect. She will express her femininity best by seeking to affirm, receive, and nurture that which is good about the way he leads the family, to encourage good leadership, And in God's common grace, even non-believers can still be respectable spouses and parents. And she would seek to win him to the Lord through love, respect, service, and prayer because she's ultimately not serving him, but she's serving the Lord. But I do want to be very clear that there are situations when husbands step over the line and wives are not called to submit. And that's why our definition specifies godly or worthy men. Because if men step over the line and ask their wives to sin, Mm -hmm. wives are not supposed to follow that. No woman should ever follow her husband into sin. She must join the apostles in the book of Acts when they say we must obey God rather than men. And if a husband becomes abusive and misuses his authority in harmful ways, the godly thing to do is not simply to subject oneself to that abuse, but to seek help immediately from those that God has placed, other authorities that God has placed in your life, that could be government. It could be police. It could also be the church. You have to again. We have to gauge how serious these things are. But it is not a. It is not an anti-biblical idea. For a wife suffering abuse to tell her church, to get help, to bring that man under submission to the elders, to bring that man to um, uh, receive church discipline if it need be. And if it is uh, crossing a serious line, it is absolutely all right for wives to call the cops, and to arrest a husband who is abusing the wife. It may not be divorceable, but it may be jailable. And we we, we need to say that as clearly as possible, because for too long the church has, I think, done a disservice to women by emphasizing submission, but not emphasizing that there are earthly consequences for men who abuse their power. Both can be true at the same time. We can ask and call on women to submit according to what Scripture says, and yet at the same time we can affirm that if men cross lines in in their leadership positions, whether in the home or the church or the world, that there are earthly consequences, that God has given the authority of the state, the sword, not for no purpose. And so it is absolutely okay not to subject oneself to that type of abuse, but to seek God's appointed help when needed. The Bible never condones men who use their authority to harm. It condemns them. It calls them to stop and to repent. And that's one of the reasons why church has elders, and a plurality of elders, to help women and eventually to help help these men through difficult times and discern what is the right thing to do, to stand in and protect women if and when necessary. So this feminine disposition to affirm leadership of godly men is crucial in marriage, or Uh, It would also take place as women follow leadership of men who are elders in their church. And there are other contexts as well. Even in areas where submission isn't prescribed, we shouldn't be surprised to find that women express their femininity by encouraging the men around them to exercise their responsibilities to provide and protect for others. This is that helping with a lowercase h that we talked about earlier. Women will use their relational disposition to encourage men in motherly or sisterly ways within the body of Christ. So a woman who's not my wife shouldn't submit to me as a husband, but she can and should encourage me, exhort me, pray for me, offer me advice as I can, so I can do better as a man seeking godliness, even if need be, rebuke me in love. And it would be crazy for me or any other man not to welcome that from godly sisters in Christ. So, for example, it's appropriate and feminine when single women in our church show sisterly trust and respect for the men who are here. That can be allowing men to serve you in different ways, in practical ways, helping widows, the, the church did by helping widows in the in the Bible, providing for their needs. Men stepped up to the plate and and served widows in those ways. It can also be done by giving advice. you know, often Single men will ask godly women about advice on dating and courting and marriage, coming alongside them in uniquely sisterly ways to help them grow. So there's lots of different ways, and we don't have time to think about all the context, but again, to see this as a a beautiful picture of how God works in the life of men and women. That from the very beginning, God's design in creating the universe and governing the way He does has been to put the glory of his grace on display through the death of his son, for the sake of his bride. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's God's purpose for his bride. The ultimate purpose of creation and redemption is put the glory of Jesus Christ on display, by purchasing and purifying his bride, the church. So where does that take us in regard to this ultimate meaning of womanhood and that women can can woman up and accept and embrace their roles and responsibilities? Just like men need to man up and accept their roles and responsibilities. It doesn't take us to some sort of wimpy theology or wimpy women. I use that from Piper. He said that. We don't want wimpy theology or wimpy women. It's not wimpy to say that God created the whole universe, governs all things, to magnify His own glory in the death of His Son for the salvation of His people. That leads. That type of thinking actually leads to true, robust, strong womanhood. It leads us to the idea that true biblical womanhood and manhood, masculinity and femininity, belong at the very center of God's purpose. That they're not an afterthought. Or, or just a, a, a side note in God's plan. That the ultimate meaning of true womanhood is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there weren't women. If there were only generic people, not men and women, the glory of Christ would be diminished in the world. And when God describes the glorious work of his son as the sacrifice of a husband for his bride, he is telling us why he made us men and women. He made us this way so that our maleness and our femaleness would display more fully the glory of his son in relation to his bride. So if you try to reduce womanhood to physical features or mere biological functions and then determine your role in the world merely on the basis of your competencies or your your aptitudes, you don't just miss the point of womanhood. You're actually diminishing the glory of Christ in our midst. For true femininity is indispensable in God's purpose to display the fullness of his glory. Your distinctive female personhood is not accidental and it's not incidental. It exists because of God's design and relationship to the central event of all of human history, which is the death of the Son of God. So yes, wives, submit to your own husbands as a picture of the relationship of the church to Christ. Step up to that responsibility and help your husbands and help them when they fail. Because they're going to. The point here is that marriage is to display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. And the way it does this is by men leading in responsible ways by being men and women lovingly submitting in marriage. Displaying the character qualities of Proverbs 31. Helping to nurture life and nurture and help others prosper. Looking for ways to accept the leadership that God has placed in our lives. There are no more interchangeable, women are no more interchangeable to their husbands and to this world than the church is to Christ. He knows his bride and he has died for her. And this is why uh, this is described by Paul in terms of headship and submission here. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ like servant leadership protection and provision in the home. Submission is the divine calling of wives to honor and affirm their husband's leadership and to help carry it out through her gifts. If you're not married, well, the Apostle Paul clearly loved singleness because of the radical freedom for ministry that it, that it provided. And one of the reasons he was free to celebrate his singleness and call others to join him in it is that even though marriage displayed the glory of Christ, that there are truths about Christ and his kingdom that shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage. A life of Christ-exalting singleness gives witness that the family of God doesn't grow just through childbearing, but also by sharing the gospel and seeing people come to Christ and become born again through regeneration through faith in Jesus. And so if you never marry, if you embrace a lifetime of singleness and biological childlessness, and if you receive this from the Lord's hand as a gift with contentment, You can gather to yourself those who need help, those who are lonely. Spend yourself for the gospel, not with pity, but with joy, because Christ has met your needs, and he will be glorified in your life. And particularly so if you're a woman. A life of Christ-exalting singleness, just like a life of Christ-exalting marriage or motherhood, bears witness that relationships in Christ are actually more permanent and more precious than the relationships we have on earth. Piper goes on to say in his article, a life of uh, true womanhood can flourish in a marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but it is not the main thing. Single womanhood, content to walk with Christ, are a great witness that Jesus is a better husband than any man, and in the end, will be the only groom in the whole universe. So the ultimate purpose of God in history is the display of the glory of His Son in dying for His bride. And so whether you marry or remain single, don't settle for for sitting back and do nothing, whether you're a a man or a woman, but step up to the God-given roles. Look in Scripture at the examples of godly men and women and model your life. Look at the character qualities described in a lot of these texts that we've gone over in the last weeks. And ask yourself, are these reflected in my life? And pray for God's help. To exhibit them more don't waste your womanhood don't waste your manhood because they were made for the glory of Jesus Christ and uh, so step up into the roles that God has given you and we'll talk more about how that might practically work itself out in the home and in the church in the weeks ahead so just an overview, again, we don't have time to go over these things in detail. I wish we did, um, but I'm already over time and we still have to take communion together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word and ask you to continue to write its truths upon our hearts. And as we move into a time of communion together, Father, would you help us uh, to, sh- to, to remember that our relationship with you as your church, as your bride, um, is what all these pictures look to. It's why we submit to leadership in our lives, whether it's church leadership or whether it's leadership in the home, leadership in the workplace. Father, that uh, you've modeled these things uh, to help us understand our relationship to to you and your son. So help us this morning, whether we're men or women, married or single, uh, to find our roles beautiful, to find the ways that God has created us to be as glorious to not run from them, to not apologize for the way the Bible speaks about these things in a culture that is so confused and messed up in marriage as if we should be listening to them to give us advice. We listen to you and we all submit to your word and forgive us where we fail and help us to step up as men and women uh, into the roles and the dispositions and the responsibilities that you've given to each of us on the big scale and then those individual talents and and gifts that you've given us to find ways to use them for the betterment of one another, for our good, and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name that we pray.